Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Werschler. He's an assistant clinical professor in medicine and dermatology at the University of Washington. Board certified, he is a full fellow of the American Academy of Dermatology, the American Academy of Cosmetic Surgery, the American Society of Dermatologic Surgery, the American Society for Mohs Surgery, and the American Society of Laser Medicine and Surgery. Dr. Werschler is also a founding member and past president of the American Society of Cosmetic Dermatology and Aesthetic Surgery, as well as past president of the Washington State Dermatology Association. Dr. Werschler serves as the aesthetic editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical and Aesthetic Dermatology, the associate editor-in-chief of Cosmetic Dermatology, and serves on the editorial boards of CUTIS, Journal of Drugs and Dermatology, and Skin and Aging. Dr. Werschler is the founder of Premier Clinical Research, a leading clinical trials unit specializing in dermatology product development. In this capacity, he has been extensively involved in the introduction of lasers, toxins, fillers, and actinic keratosis treatments to the specialties of dermatology and plastic surgery. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Werschler. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to uh, welcome all of, all of uh, you who are not from the Pacific Northwest to the Pacific Northwest, our home. I think we have about the nicest weather in the country right now, and we're pretty fortunate for that. So, and thank you for getting up early. It's nice to see, congratulations to you as an organization. It's nice to, um, it's nice to see the growth and, and the development of STPA. I've been involved uh, in one way or another with uh, my friend and colleague, Joe Monroe, since the very, very early days of your organization. In fact, maybe even since before the organization was actually officially developed. And, and I wrote some of the uh, first articles about how physicians, dermatologists, and physician assistants could work together in the dermatology office successfully. And for many years, they were on your website. I don't know if they still are or not, but uh, congratulations to you. Um, this morning, we have the uh, opportunity to talk a little bit about actinic keratoses. Now, actinic keratoses, I, I kind of like actinic keratoses, actually, because I think that they're, um, they're fun to work with. Uh, if, a, if a disease state can be fun, but they are. And the patients generally come in and they don't like them, but uh, generally the patients are not sick from them, they're not uncomfortable from them. They are with squamous cells, as I'll show you some photos. But generally patients with actinic keratosis, they come in, they have these rough spots, they don't like them. Women don't like them because they mess up the makeup and they don't like them because of the appearance-related effects. And guys sometimes complain about not liking them because they get irritated when they shave or because their wives or girlfriends or mothers or whoever send them in to be treated. So, so actinic keratoses, I think, are a lot of fun. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the disease state, about different uh, uh, presentations of AK, about different treatment options that we have, and sort of how to, how to put those all together and try to give you a little bit of an update on things. That's the game plan for this morning. So if we look at actinic keratoses, they probably have been around since Caucasians have been around. They were first described in the, in the medical literature by de Brule, who in 1896 described them, and this is a, an excerpt from that original paper. I think it's always good to look at the historical nature of things, and he identified what, what we today call actinic keratoses. Uh, he called them keratosis senilis, um, or, or senile keratoses, and for those of you who are past the, the, the mid-century mark, remember that senile means, means wisdom. That was the original meaning, so 
Um, and um, when, um, you know, around the same time, it was actually just a few years later, uh, Harry Bowen uh, described the condition of Bowen's disease. Now, he didn't relate that to an actinic keratosis, but clearly um, Bowen's disease or squamous cell carcinoma in situ as a transitional lesion has been well described and is put into sort of that pathway. When we look at uh, a more recent article from uh, James Spencer down in Florida, um, actinic keratoses are the most common precancerous lesion, period. Precancerous lesions, not just of skin, but precancerous lesion. Um, they have a prevalence estimated in different articles between 11 and 25% of adults, which means somewhere between 1 in 4 and 1 of 10 of your patients that walk in are going to have an AK. And I'll tell you, if you're practicing in, in Sun City, Arizona, if you're practicing in Florida, if you're practicing in Southern California, it may seem like it's every patient that walks in um, uh, has actinic keratoses. And I remember one, one day, probably 10 years ago, I was doing some lectures in, in Florida, and, and I was lecturing over lunch, and it was a very, very large office. And I came out after lunch into the waiting room, and the waiting room, it looked like an ER on a busy Saturday night, except that the average age of the patient was about 80. And they were there with their walkers and their wheelchairs, and the waiting room was packed. And people were taking a number, just like you do when you go up to the deli counter. And I stopped, and I looked, and I thought, what could this be? And I turned around, I walked back into the, to the back part of the office, and I went to the office manager's office. I said, what's going on out there? And she said, oh, it's AK day. And I said, AK day? She goes, yeah. You know, you only get paid to treat 15. So, so all these patients line up, they take a number, they get 15 lesions treated, frozen, and then they, they come back, you know, in 61 days or whatever the, the, Medicare, uh, the Medicare moniker is. So... It was interesting. I've never quite seen that. I mean, I practice in, in Spokane, and I'm over here frequently, and we have a lot of AK, but not quite, not quite to the deli counter approach. Um, so we have a lip variant of these, which is called the actinic chyolitis. Chyol is just Latin for lips, and you can certainly appropriately call it an actinic keratosis of the lip, but by convention, we use the term actinic chyolitis. And then in addition to the spots that you can see or feel, what we term the clinically apparent keratoses, you have a whole other group. And actually, it's a substantially larger group. And those are referred to as latent or preclinical or subclinical keratoses. And that particularly plays a role in, in your choice of therapy and how to preframe the patient in terms of what to expect from that therapy and also how to sort of prognosticate what that patient's future looks like in terms of AK management. So, so here's a guy, you know, he looks like your, your typical sort of maybe, maybe late 50s to mid 60s, so it probably works indoors and just looking at his skin and probably spends a lot of time on the weekends out on the golf course or boating or, you know, doing outdoors things. And you look at his skin and you see photo damage. But I'm not sure necessarily that the first thing that I would think of in terms of just assessing his skin is that he's at high risk for skin cancer. And yet when you look at the skin closely, there's AKs all over there. But these AKs are small. They're commonly misdiagnosed as liver spots or freckles or sunspots. Uh, but we know that they're AKs. They're just early in their development. And some AKs grow like a silo. They, they, sort of, they sort of grow straight up, and they get thick and, and as we say, horny. 
Um, other actinic keratoses will grow like a drop of oil on water, and they spread out, and they're very thin. You kind of notice that when you freeze, because you see that little textural, what I call that freeze etching effect, and it just continues out. It's like you're spray painting wider and wider circles. It's like putting graffiti on, kind of. Um, so, so when we see the, the different presentations of actinic keratoses, they don't all look like the big, thick lesions that you'll necessarily see in the textbook. They can be very thin, they can look like dry skin, and commonly, and I'm sure you've had this experience, patients will come in and they'll make excuses as to what they are. I've cut myself shaving, it's a rough spot, or, or I tend to rub that area. They, they come in with excuses, and those excuses are because they're trying in their own minds to figure out what is going on. And I think it's very important that, that you not get misled by what the patient tells you. I mean, how many times have you had, say, an adolescent come in and complaining of a rash? and they take off their shirt, and their rash is acne. But you can't tell them they have acne because they believe they have a rash. Oh, I don't have acne. Look at my face. My face is perfectly clear. Well, but you have the rash, and your rash, it's kind of pimple-like. Oh, OK. So, so a lot of that just depends on, on how you frame it. Um, on the top of the ear, we, we see, uh, commonly in men, uh, we see these crusted spots. That's kind of a danger zone, backs of the hands. And AKs can be clinically very difficult. In fact, I would, I would propose that they can be um, uh, impossible to always clinically distinguish from squamous cell carcinomas. And how many times have we had a biopsy of an AK that we think is a squamous cell? Or how many times have we had a biopsy of what we think is uh, of, of a squamous cell that we think is an AK? So, so it can be very difficult. And there's a certain setup for these. Almost always, not exclusively, but almost always, and I like to deal in the 80% rather than the 20% world, because that's what we see 80% of the time. You're gonna have someone who is a Fitzpatrick skin type one or two. They have blue or green eyes, red or blonde hair, easy freckling, outdoor work. Gee, this sounds like all the risk factors for skin cancer, doesn't it? Well, in fact, it's all part of the same. And, and they have a history of sunburns, and they typically have a family history of skin cancer or precancerous lesions. And they tend to, AKs have an increasing risk with your, your, your proximity to the equator. So those people that live in the southern states have more AKs just statistically than those who live in the northern states. But also altitude. Do we have anybody here from Colorado? I, you know, I, I'm originally from Arizona and I've spent quite a bit of time in Colorado. I think some of the most sun damaged skin that you see is not on the beaches of Florida or Southern California. It's in the mountains of Colorado. Altitude plays a big role in photo damage and subsequently plays a big role in the development of AK. And overwhelmingly, actinic keratoses tend to be more on men. And there's a lot of reasons, a lot of speculative reasons for that. I think it's really very simple. Men don't wear makeup. And, and, and makeup, even without sunscreen, is still a pretty darn effective sunblock. And, and when you look to see where women get AKs commonly, chests. Why? Well, women typically don't put makeup on their chest because it messes up the clothing. So you, you tend to see it more in men, but clearly it occurs in men and women both. And the setup is typically, you know, someone who starts early getting their photo damage. So when we look at the frequency of diagnoses, um, there's literature out there that suggests that actinic keratoses and photo damage is actually the number one diagnosis within dermatology. And then there's other literature that says it's the second most common, regardless if it's, if it's the first and, and the other being acne. So, so acne and AK. Um, 
whether it's first or second really doesn't matter, right? you're splitting hairs, um, it's a very, very common diagnosis. And somewhere between five and a half and eight million visits in 2010, um, which accounted for about 14% of visits to dermatology, and about 60% of dermatology visits that were covered by Medicare. So you can see that clearly it is, and that's because of the age association. So, so really what we, what we see is a fair skin, somewhat middle decades or older individual who has that background history of sun exposure, outdoor work, things like that. So when it comes to treatment options, um, is there an option not to treat? I, I don't think so. Not, that's in, in, my, in my professional experience, in my personal opinion, I don't think there is an option not to treat AK. I think you have many options as to when you treat it, how you treat it, what combination of products you use to treat it, or what combination of procedures. But I think that all AKs should be treated. And the reason why is I've just been around long enough to see patients who've had AKs who've blown off the treatment and they come back and one has erupted into a squamous cell. And I tell patients literally what I say to them, if you think freezing or creams are a hassle, try surgery for skin cancer. That's much more of a hassle. I would much rather freeze off an AK on the tip of someone's nose than excise a squamous cell on the tip of someone's nose, and they would too. So when we look at the treatment options that we have, if we look at it from the 30,000 foot view, we have procedural or destructive therapies, and there's a lot of those, and I'll show you some numbers on those. And then we have topical therapy, which is synonymous with the term of field therapy. Because typically, while you can use a topical therapy, any of them, to treat a single lesion, and there are some patients that do. Um, how many of you have had the experience of a patient comes in and they're using their 5-FU under a Band-Aid on a specific spot? And invariably, yeah, I see answers, people nodding their heads. It, it seems like it's always an older guy that does that. Oh, yeah, I've been working on this one for a while. You know, and I always wonder, you know, what are you working on there? Um, but uh, they do. And, and, some, and then we have combination therapy. So we have combination of a topical treatment. Uh, and we have combinations of that with some types of, of procedural treatments. And, you know, here's another background. Here you see a lot of erythema. Really, you could probably make the diagnosis of rosacea in this gentleman. Um, but he's got a lot of actinic keratoses as one of our study patients. And you can see we identify the, the keratoses and, and try to map those and mark those. And I'll tell you, that can be pretty difficult in terms of a study context. Um, and I think one of the reasons, and I've done AK studies now for close to 20 years, I think one of the reasons that you see such funny numbers in the outcomes of the clinical trials on these products is because it's the nature of the beast. Actinic keratoses have a tendency to wax and wane. They come and go. They tend to come back again in the same spot. It's difficult to count them. Depending on how hard the patient dried off with the towel, how hard they, they, they stroked the razor across their beard that day, you may or may not see the AKs. Um, what does tend to be a consistent um, uh, presentation, so talk about a sensitive spot. Well, this spot, you, you can't see it or feel it, but it's kind of sensitive, and, and, and I, I will freeze a sensitive spot in that clinical background. So there's a, a position paper that came out with the American Cancer Society, the Academy of Dermatology, and the Skin Cancer Foundation. It was published in 2000, um, and, and you, is anybody here from Florida? Oh, good, good, I like that. And, and I don't know how long you've been practicing, but 
if you go back a little bit more than a decade, there was a big issue in Florida. The, the regional administrator for Medicare decided they would no longer pay for the treatment of AKs. Anybody remember that? Well, it, and, and it would, became a big deal in dermatology, um, as, and it was because of the, the frequency, the, the, the prevalence of actinic keratosis in the, um, in the Medicare population in Florida. So, so a position paper came out that actinic keratosis and squamous cells, and I can go back far enough where that was recognized, but it wasn't really promoted, but that they are actually related. They're actually a spectrum. And that, that with actinic keratosis, you have some risk of turning into squamous cell. I mean, we know that intuitively. But it was the P53 gene mutation which was, was determined to be this exactly, exactly the same in both AK and SCC, and therefore that you, you had this, this, this transition process in the development of actinic keratosis to squamous cell carcinoma. And so in this position paper, and with the help of a number of noted dermatopathologists, including uh, Clay Cockrell, it was proposed that, that a new um, uh, naming system within the field of dermatopathology be developed. And some dermatologists use this. I think that this is something that it didn't really catch wind and take off, but it is slowly creeping into the literature and into your pathology reports. That, that you can um, co-op from cervical intraepithelial neoplasia as a, a grading system called keratinocyte intraepithelial neoplasia. And, and, and that that is, gives you an idea of this spectrum um, of, of, of disease that develops from the actinic keratosis. So why is that important? It's important because the differentiation between an AK and a squamous cell is not always clinically possible. We know that, and, and we talked about that a few moments ago. There's no clinical feature that can reliably predict malignant progression. Characteristics such as increased redness, thickening, ulceration, induration, growth, pain. Squamous cells typically are painful, but not always. AKs usually aren't, but sometimes are. But those can all indicate a lesion that currently is undergoing a malignant transformation. Newer data shows that, that AKs have the potential to develop into basal cell carcinoma. This was a study that was done in the VA system, and, and it's referenced down below there. <clears throat> um, and, and we know that that's about a half percent in one lesion of turning into a basal cell and, and, and in one year, and about two and a quarter percent in five years. So it is true that, that actinic keratoses are precancerous, but they're not just precancerous for AK, they're also precancerous for basal cell. And remember that basal cell and squamous cell, they're, they're like first cousins, they're related. They're from the same, same skin cells, and we have that in-between lesion called a basal squamous or, or, or a keratinizing basal cell carcinoma, which is the same thing. So, there is a nearly universal association on the skin of AK and invasive squamous cell. Here in a histopathology study that was done, they looked at 459 cases of invasive, invasive squamous cell carcinoma from the skin. 97% of those were associated with actinic keratosis either at the periphery of the surgical site or within the confines of the squamous cell carcinoma. What that looks like under the microscope is you have what we call skip areas. You have tumor, AK, tumor, AK, all in the same field. So we know that these two are, are closely related. And I would, I would suggest that in this patient's temple that random biopsies in that area 
could demonstrate either AK or squamous cell, or both within the same biopsy. So there again, clinical judgment begins to play a huge role. Here is a, a, a more classic thickened, or what we call a hypertrophic, or hyperplastic, or hyperkeratotic AK. Those names are all used just clinically to describe AKs that are thickening up, that are getting scab or, or a bit warty-like. And they're usually in these lesions. They usually don't exist in isolation. Usually these lesions have a field effect. So again, at the periphery of this lesion is more of your typical AK. Um, as you look on the right of the screen, there's a pigmented AK. So some actinic keratoses can present as a pigmented lesion. Actually, those can be pretty tough sometimes to distinguish between seborrheic keratoses, between barnacles. Because a pigmented AK and a barnacle kind of look alike. And, and I never fault anyone for freezing SKs because they're not sure if they're SKs or AKs, because lots I'm not always sure either. So the whole idea is, is that you're doing it for the benefit of the patient. You're getting rid of those spots that may present a risk. I think the one in the center of the field, it's a pretty diagnosable hypertrophic AK. And hypertrophic AKs are felt to be in that continuum in that, that, that keratinocyte intraepithelial neoplasia. They're considered to be closer to the squamous cell side than they are the, the, the early actinic keratosis side. So it's all about a spectrum. So if we look at genetic mutations, we know that actinic keratoses, the bowenoid lesion, Bowen's disease, Bowenoid actinic keratosis, bowenoid keratosis. All those are synonyms, and I'm probably forgetting a few. But all of those are synonyms. If I see Bowen's or bowenoid or, or Bowen's effect or something like that in a biopsy, to me all that, that means is that it's a more advanced AK. Many of the pathologists, I would argue that most of the pathologists today, when they have truly what they believe is an, a squamous cell carcinoma in situ, or a bowenoid lesion, or a bowenoid squamous cell, or a bowenoid actinic keratosis, that all means exactly the same thing. That is the transition point where it has enough features to look like a squamous cell that it could be a squamous cell, and it has enough features that look like an actinic keratosis that it could be an actinic keratosis, so you just call it a bowenoid lesion. And, and um, when they do genetic studies on that, it's not just the P53 mutation, but P63, Survivin, and HTERT are all found to have the same mutation pathway within, within the, the AK and the squamous cell. And it's impossible to distinguish between AK and squamous cell with just molecular studies, because what you find is you find the same genetic mutations. The, the prevalence of that mutation may be somewhat higher in a fully developed squamous cell, but it's the same thing that's there. So if we think about the transition of how do you make these things that are so common, that present to our office every day, that account for a huge amount of the healthcare dollar that's expended within the universe of dermatology, well, you begin by going out into the sun, because these are a sun-associated lesion. Unless you've been nude sunbathing or you grew up in a nudist colony, I had a patient one time that did do that. She told me about that. That was kind of interesting. Um, and, and, but unless you're of, of, of those exceptions, think about it. When's the last time that you saw an actinic keratosis on someone's rear end? It just doesn't happen. They stop at clothing lines. They are from chronic exposure, which leads to actinic damage. That actinic damage, which is principally the pyrimidine dimers, then over time, and this is the lag phase, begins to manifest itself as actinic keratosis, and then if conditions are right, 
and that, that's a whole bunch of things. The continued damage, genetic predilection, medications. We all know that there's more AKs and uh, especially more squamous cells that erupt in our transplant patients who are on immunosuppression. Well, then you get a squamous cell cancer. So, so that's the natural progression of photo damage that we see. Here is a lesion that, that you look at and you say, gee, is this, a, you know, is this a, a, an AK or is this a squamous cell? Well, again, it, this depends a little bit on where you biopsy. Because again, I, I would suggest if you biopsy around the edge of that, or if you look at the top left-hand corner of the screen, there's a little satellite lesion, I'll bet you that comes back as a actinic keratosis. But if you biopsy in the middle of this, especially where it's, where it's somewhat eroded, ulcerated, and erythematous, I, I would bet that this comes back as a squamous cell, which in fact is what this is. So where to biopsy, it's not so much in these lesions how to biopsy. This isn't that you know, punch, shave kind of controversy or not even controversy discussion. It, it's where to biopsy. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a big shave biopsy guy most of the time, except for inflammatory dermatoses, rashes, things like that, where I want to get some fat and deep dermis, and that I tend to shave a lot of things. Um, so, so you look at that and you say, wow, you know, that's a pretty angry lesion. Here's another one. Again, now this is a squamous cell, but depending on where you biopsy, if you, know, you want to kind of stay out of that big lump of lesion and go a little bit more towards the midline and take a little bit from the edge, this can falsely come back as an AK. And I don't think anybody has any, any, any question as to what this is. Um, this is just you know, one of those lesions that was neglected for a long time, and it shows you what can happen with a squamous cell. And, and of course, squamous cells are a dangerous cancer, and they do have the potential to metastasize. Squamous cells, which are the second most common skin cancer, have a yearly incidence of around a quarter million or so, and about 1% uh, uh, of those result in deaths, about 2,500 a year. Um, I would say that in my practice, about maybe every other year, I'll have a squamous cell that, that, that goes metastatic and you know, gets referred off. Usually it's to the head and neck surgeons because usually it's in the head and neck, but not always. Sometimes the hand or arm um, and, and chemotherapy and radiation and things like that. Uh, it, with the exception of the, of the lips, um, I think that generally when a squamous cell breaks loose, um, it's because of neglect on the patient's part. I remember one time we had a patient come in and, and it was a Moe's day and we, the patient was a walk-in. And my receptionist come back and she said, this guy's smoking a cigar. And I said, well, I said, he's smoking a cigar, I think he's chewing on it. And I said, oh, I said, well, you know, as long as it's not lit up, you know, I mean, it was like people come in, they chew tobacco. Well, it wasn't a cigar. It was a squamous cell on his lip that was ulcerated and eroded, and it looked like the butt of a cigar that, you know, that, that sometimes guys, you know, just kind of chomp on. And he's a farmer. And how long had it been there? I don't know, five years, 10 years, something like that. And he had a positive digastric node, and, and he did have, he had locally, uh, a local spread of, um, of squamous cell, and he, got, he had surgery and, and a neck dissection and XRT, and, and, and actually has done quite well. But, but um, I think that with the exception of lips, generally when a squamous cell breaks loose and spreads, it's because of neglect of the patient, or it's because of a, an inaccurate diagnosis by the provider, or it's inappropriate treatment. It's been frozen 10 times, keeps coming back in the same place, 
Impatient comes in every year, every six months, and freeze a little bit harder this time to get it. And you see it clears in the center, and it grows on the periphery, and, and, and that's, that's usually what happens. So in another study, um, actinic keratosis as a precursor lesion to squamous cell about 40% of the time. Have you noticed that the numbers bounce around a lot? That's because the numbers bounce around a lot. If you look at the literature, it's very difficult to get consistency, and that's because they're kind of sneaky. I said they're kind of fun to, 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 to treat, but they're kind of sneaky. So the squamous cell is characterized by rapid growth, pain, it's thick and warty, and it's found on a background of actinic damage with actinic keratosis. Now, I had a patient that walked in, actually this week, who wasn't quite this big, but it was pretty darn close, and it was right on the side of the neck. And my MA, after rooming the patient, came out, she goes, I said, what is it? And it's the little game that we play. You know, it's acne, it's psoriasis, whatever. She goes, I don't know. I've never seen it before. But she goes, it kind of looks like Frankenstein. I said, Frankenstein? She goes, yeah, he's got like this bolt growing out of the side of his neck. Well, sure enough, there was, and you know, the guy was, um, he was from a farm in central Washington, worked outdoors, and, and was uh, like a Fitzpatrick too, and he had a lot of the poikilodermis or photodermatitis changes on the side of the neck, you know, the red mottled kind of look. So, so he was younger, he was in, I think he's in his early 40s, but had a lot of photo damage. So, so he had a cutaneous horn. Now a cutaneous horn, I've seen them and biopsy them, they clearly come back as an AK. And, but, but most of the time they're squamous cells. But an AK can take off too, and it can look like a cutaneous horn. So I hope as I've interspersed some of these photos for you during the presentation, that we begin to recognize that AK can, can have a lot of different clinical presentations. And it's our job to figure out what's what. This is a pretty straightforward one because if you look at the rest of the year, it's got your rather classic garden variety, slightly, slightly thickened actinic keratosis. Here's an erosive lesion. And again, similar to that first one that we saw, it's got a surrounding field of actinic keratosis damage, but in the center, it's a squamous cell that's taking off. So once again, if we come back to the slide and take a look, the idea is that we have a natural progression of photo damage, and what we wanna do is we wanna interrupt that natural progression. We can't reverse, not yet, we can't reverse the genetic damage of actinic damage of ultraviolet radiation. But what we can do is, you know, it's kind of like if you have an old boat that leaks. We're in Seattle. If you have an old boat that leaks, well, you know, let's say that you can't really fix the leak, but you can pump out the water, you know, a bilge pump so that it doesn't sink. And a little bit, that's like what we're doing. We come in with our interventions. I like to think of it, I like to think of intervention, and this is important, I think, in the era of aesthetic dermatology, and as you know, I'm very much an aesthetic dermatologist. But I like to think of intervention as part of restoration. You know, restoration, if you just think about that word restore, means to bring back a more natural, less damaged appearance. Well, if you look at the parameters of photoaging, fine lines, coarse lines, wrinkles, telangiectasia, mottled pigmentation, actinic damage, actinic keratosis, all of those sorts of things, we're not working in an isolated vacuum where we just treat actinic keratosis and not worry about the rest of the patient's appearance and their skin. Patients don't want that, certainly in this day and age. Well, you know, we want them to continue to see us for their skin care and not the Medispa that's in the mall. So, I think that restoration is an essential part of the treatment. 
So there's five main steps that I like to think of in the management of photo-damaged skin, and this is sort of liberally borrowed from my friend Joe Gerizzo in, in North Carolina. So the first step is photoprotection. Just, you know, everybody should be using sunscreen when outdoors. Uh, I'll stay out of the vitamin D controversy. I'll tell you that I take vitamin D every morning. Of course, we do live in the Northwest. I have to tell you the other day, I came in on a Monday to sign labs. And, and, and I had a stack of labs that were for one of our research studies. And, and within those labs, and this is for a psoriasis study, we're checking vitamin D levels. And we had 17 labs, 17 patients that I was checking labs, of which 16 were vitamin D deficient. And I mean numbers like three and five and seven and undetectable. And, and, I had, I, the, and, and so virtually everybody was vitamin D deficient. And we jokingly call that the Northwest normal. Um, so there, and there's also some incidents that a deficiency in vitamin D may predispose you to skin cancer, as well as prostate and breast and, and gosh, pretty much everything else in the world with vitamin D right now. Um, however, I do tell my patients, my skin cancer patients, my AK patients, actually I tell pretty much all my patients, um, I specifically tell them that they should be taking vitamin D. Unless their doctor tells them there's some reason not to, I tell them, take 1,000 milligrams the, the, or 1,000 units, the, the little, they sell them at Costco, and, and just take one of those in the morning with breakfast. You know, adults tend not to eat milk and dairy products, and, 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 and they stay away from a lot of the foods that are high in vitamin D. Although, I'll tell you, here in Seattle, if you haven't, if you haven't yet been to Pike Place Market, you need to go down to Pike Place Market. And my, one of my favorite foods is, is salmon, and we all know salmon's very high in vitamin D. So eat some salmon while you're here. Um, so, so you educate on photoprotection, and you do your diagnosis. And if, in, in, in my world, in my office, if somebody has AK, I like to get them, maybe not on that visit, because we schedule a bit differently, but I'll schedule them for follow-up for a TBSE, a total body skin exam. It's surprising what you find. If someone has enough photo damage to have an AK in a sun-exposed area, you better be careful, because they probably have other stuff. Then we treat the visible lesions. And so all the ones you can see and feel, I typically blast them with liquid nitrogen. And then I make a decision based on the number, the presentation, the location, the patient's history, their occupation, the time of year, all of those cofactors that, that sort of go in together. I make a decision of how and when are we going to approach the treatment of the subclinical lesions. For example, this time of year, our summers are short in the Northwest, and, and so people love to go outside and enjoy it. You know, we have about eight or nine or 10 or 11 really nice weekends, and if you miss those, you know, it's a long time before the next summer. And, and uh, if, you, um, if, you miss, um, if, you, if you miss a summer, and that occasionally happens in the Northwest, we say that's what generates the serial killers. Have you ever noticed the serial killers are all kind of from the Northwest? Have you ever noticed that? And it's because of all that seasonal affective disorder. So, so anyway, you treat the subclinical lesions. But I wouldn't necessarily put someone on a topical field therapy, a 5-FU and a Mequimod or something like that, in, in June or July because they're going to miss that short summer. I'll give them a prescription and I'll say, after Labor Day, I want you to use this. Or maybe at Christmas break or something like that. Um, unfortunately, in the, in, the, in the South and the Southwest, you don't have that luxury of having nine months of winter. Um, so you have to figure out a time when, when they're going to uh, be better. And then, and then um, what I consider restoration, which is the maintenance and, and, and the attempt to regain the health of the skin, that requires some follow-up visits. Uh, generally with AK patients, uh, I may see them quarterly. That's unusual. Most of the time I'll see them 
on a six-month schedule for a sun-exposed skin exam, so head, neck area, hands, chest, things like that, maybe the lower legs of women. And then on the alternate six-month visit, so once a year for a body exam. And I think that's just very, very important. And in between, see, that gives, you a, that gives you time for them to do things like maybe to use a retinoid, to practice using sunscreen. Maybe they come in for other treatments, aesthetic treatments. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of, of things that you can do. So I believe that medical therapy can naturally and easily combine with cosmesis. And after all, after getting rid of your sunspots, why wouldn't you want to look better? So we have restoration and the reduction of skin cancer risk. Well, everybody is familiar with the little cryac, and, and, and that is probably the most valuable tool in your office. Um, when we look at procedural treatment for actinic keratosis, we have liquid nitrogen, and that works very effectively. We have lasers. Um, and, and lasers, I like doing lasers, and I, um, I don't do a lot of them for the pure treatment of actinic keratosis, mostly because it's a battle that you have to fight with insurance companies. However, many of the patients that come in desiring cosmetic enhancement also have AK, and you're back now to your clinical judgment as to what to use for a treatment. And in that situation, I'll say, I think, for example, that, that a, a fractionated laser resurfacing would be a very good treatment for you because it will help treat your wrinkles and your pigmentation, your dyschromia, and it will also help with your actinic keratosis. As you know, the Fraxel system is actually FDA approved for the treatment of AK um, and, and seems to work quite well at that. So I think you always have lots of treatments. I don't do, EDNC is used for AK. I don't do that very often. Typically, I do that if I'm obtaining a biopsy. Then we have our chemotherapy um, uh, agents. Uh, we have 5-FU, and that comes in a variety of concentrations and brand names. We have diclofenac, also known as Solarase. We have inguinalmibutate, which is known as Picado. That's kind of the new kid on, on the block. Um, we have immunotherapy, which is a form of topical chemotherapy. But if you're a little bit of a purist, I like to think of immunotherapy as being somewhat different than chemotherapy. And we have amiquimod, and it comes in a couple of different strengths. Um, and then we have combination treatments where you use combinations of different things, such as photodynamic therapy, where you would use aminolevulinic acid and a blue or now more commonly a red light. So your armamentarium of treatments is fairly extensive, actually. Um, if we look at cryosurgery, um, we know that there's a rapid freeze and a slow thaw, and, that, and, and, and that's what kills the, the cells. And liquid nitrogen, remember, is minus, minus 196 uh, uh, degrees centigrade. Um, and in one study, liquid nitrogen was found to be 98.8% effective. Um, well, I suppose liquid nitrogen ultimately could be 100% effective because you, could, you can freeze down to bone if you hold it there long enough. Um, let's just say that liquid nitrogen is highly effective. It's pretty easy. Um, it, has, it has high patient compliance because unless they move, don't be a moving target, they're going to complete the treatment because it takes all of about, you know, four to eight seconds or something like that. We actually had to measure the time that we froze and the distance that we froze for a study. It was kind of interesting. Someone asked me, how long do you freeze? I said, well, I don't know. Not very long. Well, how many seconds is that? I don't know. When's the last time you had a stopwatch out for your freezing? But anyways, these little, these little canisters where had to, when you pulled the trigger, the stopwatch went off. It was kind of fun, actually. See, I told you, actinic keratosis are fun. Um, so what are the advantages? Well, the advantage is it's effective and easy, and usually, most of the time, you knock off an AK in one treatment. Sometimes, especially with some of the bigger ones, it'll take a second treatment. My rule of thumb is if the patient comes back 
for the third time on an actinic keratosis, same one for treatment, that means it's a biopsy because it may not be an actinic keratosis. Remember, we looked at, you can't tell clinically. You can't tell by symptoms. You can't even tell by looking at, at molecular testing exactly what it is. So you have to come back to your clinical judgment. Um, the disadvantage, and this is a big disadvantage, is it only treats visible lesions. It's also very difficult to treat large areas. I mean, you'd need like the, the big, you know, blowtorch kind of tip in order to treat a big area. Um, and that there can be pigment changes. You know, it's interesting, the pigment changes. You ever have a patient yell at you that you left a scar when there's a little white spot after treating an AK? Yeah. You ever take the, like their inner arm, depending where the scar is, like take their inner arm or something and hold it next to that, that scar? What that scar most of the time is, is that's a restoration of the skin to this natural skin color as you have frozen off the actinic bronzing. Okay, why is it the outside of your forearm, or look at guys, collar line up, or look at women, decolletage of the chest compared to the breast tissue, why is it the same color in a baby and a different color on you? Even if you practice good photoprotection. Because over time, you develop an accumulation of pigment that we call actinic bronzing. That actinic bronzing is photo damage. And when you develop a lesion in that area and you zap that lesion with liquid nitrogen, you exfoliate the skin, not really unlike a chemical peel. And when you do in that local area, you remove the built up brown pigment, the actinic bronzing, which subsequently leads to an area, focal area, of, of, of a relative, relative hypopigmentation that everybody calls a scar. So people come in and they complain about scars. And it takes a little breath, as you just saw, to explain that to the patient. But what happens if you fraxel that area or if you chemically peel that area or if you use a field therapy on that area? Well, you know, it, it all kind of starts blending closer to your natural birthday suit skin color. So, so you can scar, especially if you're not really, I don't want to say skilled, but if you, you have to pay attention to where you freeze, the thickness of the tissue, how long you hold it. Uh, making sure that you know, no one's changed the tip on your liquid nitrogen from a C tip to an A tip, and you think it's a C, and you get close, and you pull the trigger, and boom, you know, I'm like, whoops, I'm sorry. They tend to do it away, okay. And you have to be a little bit careful, especially in women, guys, especially in women, about freezing within the eyebrows. Because you can, you can take out hair follicles with the freezing, and if you notch the brow in a woman, they don't like that. Um, so, and then we have curatage and electrodesiccation, um, e, D, and C, C, and D, um, uh, that type of thing. Basically, your advantage there is you can take a biopsy. Um, it does have a tendency to leave some pain. It costs more, takes longer, and it hurts more. Um, so with cryosurgery, it only treats the visible lesions. With cryosurgery, it only treats the visible lesions. And with cryosurgery, it only treats visible lesions. And that's the main failure of cryosurgery. It's a great way to treat. Unfortunately, it doesn't get the spots that you can't see. It doesn't get the spots that you can't um, feel. So for that, we have a field therapy. And the field therapy is based on the concept that there's a cancerization. Um, um, there's a field cancerization in the area, meaning that you have randomly cells. It's very frustrating if you're doing Mohs and you're taking out a squamous cell and you're looking for that clean edge and you keep finding AK at the edge. And how big do you make the hole on the patient by cutting out AK? Well, that's the field cancerization therapy, or theory. Um, it's a, a, a diffuse background of damaged skin that needs to be treated, and that reduces the burden of subclinical lesions. That reduces photo damage, and that reduces tomorrow's keratoses. Why do keratoses always come back? 
Think about it. Your patients come back year after year after year after year with more AKs on the forehead or the scalp or the face. It's not because you missed it last time. Maybe, maybe it is, you know, but, but probably not. It's because there's a field cancerization in that area, and there's clones of, of, malignant, of premalignant cells that are going to repopulate, and you're going to grow new things. And as you do that, 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 that's what causes the, 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 the chronic nature of this. So it's a little bit like managing diabetes. You don't cure AK, you manage AK. And you reduce the risk of malignant transformation. So here is a patient who came in, and, and, and this is actually one of our study patients. And this is a guy that is on a topical, he's on 5-FU. And you can see that he has spots all over. I will tell you, when he first came in, he didn't look anything at all like this. And this is not an allergic reaction to the medicine. This is not the medicine not working. This is how it's supposed to be. Same thing here. Here's a guy that came in who had actually very few visible spots on the scalp, but you could just tell there were a lot of little thin lesions. So I decided to put him on 5-FU, and look what happened. His scalp blew up with spots, and all those spots, and, and, and it's considered generally the, one of the rules of thumb is that for every spot that you can see or feel, for every clinically apparent AK, there's between four and 10 subclinicals hanging out there. So if you have four spots, uh, you could have as many as 40 actinic keratoses. So if we look at field therapy, the advantages, one of the advantages that's FDA approved, um, it treats the entire area, what we call a field fire-like effect. It treats the subclinical lesions. It repairs skin in the entire zone, sometimes to a fault. Sometimes if you have someone use it, say, on the left side of the forehead, when they get all done with the field therapy, the left side of the forehead actually looks different than the right side. It looks better. Uh, but patients don't always like that. <laughs> it's scarred. Uh, so treat the other side. That's usually the answer. Um, so it can enhance the cosmetic appearance. The major disadvantage is irritation. Redness, pain, burning, itching, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it requires a longer treatment duration than destruction. So now you run into compliance issues. There's sun sensitivity. There's the cost. You know, here's another in, in our healthcare system, and I won't go political on you, but in our healthcare system, the patient is almost penalized for getting a prescription to treat, where if they're in the office and you freeze them, you know, it, it, they have their copay and that's it, but if you give them a prescription, the prescription may or may not be covered, they have to pay the copay on the prescription. If they're in the donut hole, all those sorts of things. So, so I think that, that, that cost, it does play a role in this. Um, and it can also be actually quite painful. Scott Deinhardt's done a number of uh, nice studies on actinic keratosis. Um, here is just a, I picked up out of, out of his article, you know, burning, cresting, pustules, vesicles, erosions. I mean, who would use this stuff? Necrosis and scarring. Oh, my God. Um, and then, of course, if the patient goes online, like with 5-FU and reads the PDR, you know, then and they read about 5-FU used systemically for intravenous chemotherapy or orally, like with Zolota or something, and they think, oh, my God, you know, I'm not going to use this stuff. They bring it back to me. Here's the tube. You know, sometimes it's in a plastic bag. I don't even want to touch the tube. Um, so, anyway. Um, this is interesting, and it's too small for you to read. It's just an illustrative point. Um, uh, this is a little bit of an older slide, but things really haven't changed that much. If you look at the top 20 dermatology products that are prescribed, and what did I say actinic keratoses were in terms of frequency of diagnosis and, and visits in the US? Right, one or two, right? Well, okay, you have the number one or number two diagnosis in the country, and if you look at the top 20 dermatology products prescribed, 
an actinic keratosis treatment doesn't show up on there. Now think about that. So what does that mean? Well, it means that about 84% of actinic keratoses are treated with cryosurgery and or 5-FU. Um, uh, if we take a look at that, it's probably, you know, 80% cryosurgery and 4% 5-FU. But 5-FU is, 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 is a major treatment. Um, it's not necessarily the best treatment or the worst treatment. It's just a major treatment. And I think that just has to do with um, longevity. It's been around for a long time. You know, it was first uh, identified as a rash in a patient who was getting 5-FU intravenous chemotherapy, I think it was for liver or colon cancer, and the rash was the AKs lighting up. And actually, it was interesting, um, a, a month or two ago, I had a patient that was sent in by oncology who was on 5-FU, and his actinic keratosis had lit up, and he was sent in by oncology for the rash, and I talked to the oncologist, the oncologist said, oh my God, I forgot about that one. And I said, no, I said, you know, it's, you know, we don't usually get a chance to see that. And it was kind of fun to see because the patient's got this long list of when he got certain drugs and when these appeared and all that. And I'm looking, they're all AKs. And it was, was kind of neat. So 5-FU has a remarkable specificity against AK. Basically, it acts as a false base and it interrupts expression of the messenger RNA. So it is a direct cytotoxic agent, okay? It kills it's cytotoxic chemotherapy and it kills AKs. It may also aesthetically improve photodamaged skin. And I think that's kind of an exfoliation uh, component of that. So you can use 5-FU as monotherapy, and it works very well for that. You can use cryosurgery plus 5-FU as a combination therapy. Did you know that you can use 5-FU plus a topical steroid to reduce inflammation? How many of you, how many of you knew that? Good, good, because for a while that was forgotten. And those um, studies actually came out of, of Miami. So because 5-FU does not depend on an inflammation-dependent pathway, okay, it doesn't need help from the immune system to kill the AKs. It's cytotoxic. You can treat the side effects. It's like if you're getting chemo and you're nauseated and they give you Zofran or something to reduce the nausea. You can use 5-FU with a steroid to reduce the inflammation, the burning, itching, stinging, all of that sort of stuff, and it doesn't affect the clinical outcome, the efficacy of the treatment. That's not true with the other products. The only one that we're not sure of is Picato, inguinal mabutate. That's the new one on the block. And we, we just don't know yet, um, and because we're not certain what the mechanism of action is. Actually, the PI lists the mechanism of action, I'll come to that, as cell death, um, whatever that means. So you can use it with, with, with steroids, um, and, <clears throat> and typically the way that you do that is you use 5-FU once a day, usually at night, and in the morning you give them a low to mid-potency corticosteroid lotion or cream um, to put on the skin, and, and this keeps the patient kind of in, in society, in the workplace, and, and that type of thing. Actually, it works pretty well. Um, you can use this interval therapy. We talked earlier about the patient that comes in that has the spot with the, they put the 5-FU on, the old FUDEX and the Band-Aid. That FUDEX had expired in 1975, but they still got a little bit of that tube. And you know, amazingly, it still works. So you can use this in interval therapy. You can use it as part of sequential or rotational therapy, which is just a term that is borrowed from the... Um, a chemotherapy from, from systemic chemotherapy, where you know on round one you get this cocktail of drugs, and then on round two you get this cocktail of drugs. And what you're doing is this, you're trying to stay ahead of emerging resistance of the tumor. And there is, there is some evidence to that. Um, there was a small study that looked at, at, at 
at, at, at repeated rounds of 5-FU for AK. And there's some controversy around it, but have, those of you who prescribe 5-FU, have you noticed that, that there is a decreasing effect on each subsequent use? Now, we used to always say that's because there's fewer AKs there. But, but even in patients five or 10 years later when they say, hey, well, that was nothing like the first time. So your question is, are you selecting out resistant clones of cells? So the whole idea behind rotational or sequential chemotherapy, and I do buy into this a little bit, is that you might use 5-FU one time, then you might use amiquimod, then you might use diclofenac. In other words, as you go through the months or the years, what you do is you sort of rotate the chemotherapy a little bit in order to, to stay ahead of the game is, is essentially what, um, what you're doing. Um, there's different strengths. Um, the 5% is typically dosed twice a day and the half percent once a day. Now that sounds a little counterintuitive. Why would you do that? Um, well, the reason is, is that the formulation of the half percent strength, that's known as Kerak, is in these little time-release capsules. And with 5-FU, you want it to stay on the skin because that's where the action is. That's where the, the job is to do. The faster it's absorbed and excreted out of the body, the less effective it is. So what happens is by putting them in these little carriers, the, the 5-FU stays on the skin longer, and that's why 0.5% can work just as well as 5%. Not that it's, it's, a, it's exactly the same drug. It just hangs around longer. Um, so studies have compared them, and the, I think the meta-analysis of the studies is that they are equivalent. Treatment protocols are one, two, or four weeks. Um, I like to, I, I generally will start a patient with one. You don't want to beat them up too much. You know, there's a little bit of that, 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 that patient management there. So I have them use, I, I, I use a lot of the half percent. I'll have them use that once a day for one week. And then come back and see me a couple weeks afterwards. And generally they say, well, it's starting to get bad towards the sixth and seventh day, but it wasn't too bad. I knew it was going to be over in seven days, and blah, blah, blah. And then they're happy, and then they're good for the next go-round. And then you tell them to use it two weeks, and then they shoot you. Um, but um, so you can use it morning or night. It's not a photosensitizing treatment. The inflammatory reaction that you get from it is photosensitizing because it's raw skin. But the drug itself, unlike, say, a retinoid, is not a photosensitizing drug. Um, combination treatment, I think, we've talked about that with the steroid. Let's look at amiquimod. It's an immune system modifier. I like amiquimod. You know, this is Aldara or Zyclera. It stimulates innate and cell-mediated immunity, and it acts through the upregulation of the toll-like receptor, TLR7, the sonic hedgehog pathway. Um, in those who are responsive to the molecule, it appears about 80% of people are responsive. How many of you have tried amiquimod one form or another for any diagnosis, and you just have a complete non-responder? Yeah, it happens. You know, it's, it's, about, it's about one out of five people just don't respond. It's that lock and key mechanism thing, and for some reason, some people don't respond. So with amiquimod, um, we know that it increases production of cytokines, including interferon alpha and TNF alpha. Now, why is interferon alpha important? Because you can get a flu-like effect if you use it on a large enough area. And the rule of thumb, and we did the area ranging studies, is about 25 centimeters squared. So if you go five centimeters by five centimeters. Once you get beyond that, people begin to get a little bit of that flu-like, interferon-like um, um, uh, syndrome. They get a little nausea, a little fatigue, 
uh, uh, malaise. Everybody has malaise today. But um, no, they, and, and, and a little, sometimes even a little photophobia, and, and they just they don't feel good. You can take Tylenol, and it helps, and, and that. But most of the time, what you need to do is you need to, to back the area down. And it's a direct cellular effect of amiquimod that results in the restoration of the apoptotic genes. So apoptosis is a programmed cell death. It gets rid of cells that are, supposed, that are not supposed to be there. Downregulation of the anti-apoptotic genes, and basically you get a cytokine soup, and it upregulates the immune system in the area that you're using it. And that's why somebody can be using it in the forehead, and they might have a spot on the nose that lights up, because there's a, there's a, a systemic immune system effect, whereas with 5-FU, it's directly where you put it on, which reminds me, always warn your male patients after applying 5-FU that they wash their hands before they go to the bathroom. Um, come on, you can laugh with me a little bit. That's a true story. Um, so, so with, with Amiquimod, there's a lot of different treatment protocols. Uh, with the 5%, generally choose two or three times a week, and there's different intervals, 8, 12, 16 weeks, like that. With the 3.75%, generally it's used once a day for two weeks. There's a two-week drug holiday, and then it's used once a day for two weeks. And we talked about limiting the application area. With diclofenac, chemically, it's an aspirin-related product. It's an NSAID. And with diclofenac, it inhibits cyclooxygenase. We've heard of that enzyme, uh, the COX-2 inhibitor. It's overexpressed in actinic keratosis compared to normal skin. And that results in a COX-2-mediated synthesis of prostaglandin E2. By inhibiting COX-2, diclofenac enhances, here's that word again, apoptosis, that programmed cell death. And that decreases a tumor's ability to become invasive and positively affects immune responsiveness. So diclofenac, known as Solarase, pretty nice product. It's a, in most instances, it's a little bit gentler. It doesn't cause as much of the inflammation, the erythema. But it can. It can cause just as much, but it's just not as common. I typically use it twice a day for 90 days. Some people use it twice a day for like 180 days. Um, longer seems to be better. Uh, inguinomibutate, that is, is Paketo. That's the new kid on the block. It induces cell death, okay? That's, that's actually out of the PI, cell death. So they're not exactly sure, although it has some features of acute contact dermatitis. When you look at it under the microscope, a little bit like poison ivy. So maybe there's an allergic reaction component as well. It initiates an inflammatory response. It is a neutrophilic recruiter. And that's why with Picado, you're more likely to see these vesicles and pustules. It looks like an infection. Or it looks a little bit like pustular psoriasis. So it looks a little bit different because it's a neutrophil recruiter. Um, you get mitochondrial swelling. The mitochondrial swelling leads to a loss of cellular membrane integrity because you don't have the energy to make the proteins to stabilize the cell membranes, and that seems to be how it works. It also induces interleukins and TNF-alpha, and it modulates something called protein kinase C isoforms, which helps to distinguish between regular keratinocytes and damaged keratinocytes. Um, with inguinalmibutate, it increases, and this is important, it increases the connective tissue building blocks like high molecular weight hyaluronins, think hyaluronic acid, and scar resolution and improved dermal cosmesis. There may be a, an aesthetic component that's different than just getting rid of photo damage with, with Picado, and, and that is, is something that's being looked at now. It's kind of a neat thing, actually. Um, it's approved in two strengths. How many of you have used it? 
Oh, excellent. Wow, I mean, those reps are doing a pretty good job. Um, it comes in two strengths. There's a 0.015 that is used for the face and scalp and a 0.05 for the trunk and extremities. The regimen is for the face and scalp, it's once a day for three days, and for the trunk and extremities, it's once a day for two days. Um, Aminolevulinic acid, how many people do, do um, PDT in the office? Oh, good. I can tell you that six, seven, eight, nine years ago, something like that, there'd be one hand that would go up in the back of the room, and then people would say, why are you using that stuff? It doesn't work. We've learned how to make it work. And, and so for those of you who may not be familiar with it, you paint the skin like a paintbrush, or you dab on the lesions of treatment that you want to treat, and then you use an activating light source. So the aminolevulinic acid is a dye which sensitizes the skin. And then when it's exposed to a blue or now more commonly a red light, red light you get production of singlet oxygen species, and that results in, in destruction of the non-hyperkeratotic AKs. Generally, all of the topical treatments should not be used on hyperkeratotic AKs. Freeze those, get rid of those, laser those, do whatever it is that you want to do to those. And then remember, this is the field effect for the latent lesions. It, PDT is well tolerated. It can be painful. It burns while you're exposed to that light. Um, and, and I think that it works similar to a cryosurgery in its overall effect. Um, so in conclusion, your choice of AK treatment is often based on the individual patient factors. That's why we're dermatology specialists. Cryosurgery effectively treats the visible lesions, but it's limited by, by, by the patients and the clinical lesions. Um, some people don't like to be frozen. Simply, you're not going to freeze me. Don't get near me without blowtorch. So then you got to go to something else. Topical chemotherapy, field therapy, provides a blanket treatment. And it's very effective, and we believe it to be very safe. New treatment paradigm is emerging, which is a destruction plus a topical. And within the world of topicals, rotational therapy may actually be the best. Combination therapy options, in my opinion, a field treatment can be an effective component of combination therapy for all AK patients, because AKs don't exist in isolation. If there's one takeaway message from, from this presentation today is that there's a field effect. So I like to think of when a patient comes in, my approach is I like to freeze all the big ones and freeze the visible lesions, knock them off, reduce that tumor burden, get rid of them. Then I like to use a topical. Which topical you use, we've talked about the topicals. You know, at the end of the day, if you do a meta-analysis, when used appropriately, all of the topicals have about the same efficacy rate. They're all somewhere in that neighborhood of about 80, 85% effective, which is pretty darn good. So I like to freeze, I choose a topical based on the location. Sad to say, the insurance coverage and cost. Um, it has to do with previous experience in that patient. You know, you don't give me that FU stuff, doc. You understand? Nope, nope, this is totally different. Totally different, you know? This is basically, it's like an aspirin. Oh, okay, and then, you know, then they get mad at you anyway, but, you know, they've used it by then, so. And then I freeze them again. Why do I freeze them again? Because after that topical therapy, if there's anything left, I will either freeze it to finish off the treatment, or I'll biopsy it to make sure I haven't unroofed a latent basal cell or, or a, a squamous cell. And, and, and by doing that, I am treating the visible lesions and I'm treating the reservoir or the warehouse lesions that I can't really see. So for the patient, you get enhanced efficacy for both clinical and preclinical lesions, and they have a greater lesion-free interval and a decreased risk of malignant transformation. 
and for the provider, more complete and effective management of the AK patient. So that, that completes the presentation, and I, um, I, I hope that there's one or two takeaway points. My, my goal when I have a lecture is if you learn one thing, it was, it was, it was positive, and, and I hope that there was something in there that, that would help you. I don't know, do we do questions? Um, okay, well, we're running a little bit ahead of time, actually. How often does that happen? I have to thank Dr. Berman for that, so. Um, questions? Wonderful talk, thank you so much. Um, I just had a question regarding uh, AKs on the forearms, and, and we do have you know, issues with um, length, duration of the treatment that we need to do, and what's kind of your regimen? I mean, I sometimes will use Tazerac and then use um, the, I use more Effudex than anything else, but what do you uh -huh. find that's kind of the best? Uh, well, that's a great that? question. You know, all these studies basically, except for Picato, they've been done on, 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 in terms of topical management. They've all been done really on the face and scalp. Um, and actually, one of the areas that I really appreciate using topicals is on the lower legs in women. Because when you freeze on the lower legs, there's a greater risk of getting little ulcerations and scarring and the hypopigmentation. And, and certainly in the warmer climates where women wear, wear more skirts and shorts year-round, there's a lot of AKs there. So if I am looking at an off-face location and I'm looking to use a topical, um, I typically use the same you know, I use the same products, of course, and I'll typically use the same treatment protocol, although I, I, I tend to lean more towards a longer duration. So if I'm going to use five of you on the face for a week, I might use it on the arms or the legs or the chest for two weeks. I think there's a little bit, and I think the literature supports this, a little bit of a slower response off face. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Um, we also sometimes we use Unaboot wraps on the arms. Use, uh, I'm sorry, what? Unaboot wraps. Oh, on oh, the arms. so you put it under occlusion. Uh huh. Yeah, we'll do with that. With five FU? We'll see them weekly uh -huh. and uh, for a few weeks and, and find that that helps because the, the forearms we just don't find as much of a response if we don't kind of occlude it or put Tazerac for two weeks beforehand. So. What, what if they have both arms and both legs? I know. Do you Unaboot them all the time? <laughs> no, that's, you know, Unaboot, you don't hear that, 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 that that name being used that often anymore. And some people, and that goes back to my, my anecdotal example of, of, of sort of the older guy who comes in with a Band-Aid, who's been putting a little spot, uh, a little spot of topical, usually Effudex, on there and putting a Band-Aid on. I've been doing that for like a month or so and burning a spot away. I oftentimes think that those are basal cells or squamous cells. When you occlude these products, they do tend to work better, but then you get typically more of an inflammatory response. But I would agree with you in concept completely is that you have to like push them a little bit harder off base. Next question. Can you comment on ways to make Levulan uh, work a little bit better? Because I've not had a lot of success with it. And I know some people will use 5-FU before the Levulan, but um, that seems to just be pretty torturous for the patient when they have to sit in the the blue you with, uh, you know, after five of you in Levulan and they don't like it a lot. How long are you letting it incubate for? Uh, about an hour. I, I think the first thing that I would do is I would look at, 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 at a longer incubation time. Our usual approach for using amino levulinic acid, and we now use a, the red light and the Omnilux red light, and it's a four minute, five second treatment protocol, and it's got a little more oomph to it. But our usual approach is for the first, we do three treatments at one month intervals and then have the patient cycle back to see the provider. The first treatment, they incubate for an hour. The second treatment, they incubate for 90 minutes. And the third treatment, they incubate for two hours. So we're pushing incubation. We prep the skin with a clarisonic brush. 
and, 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 and cleanser. I mean, so we're actually pretty aggressively cleansing the skin. And surprising what people keep on their skin when they're coming in for a treatment. You know, they just put on all the makeup or the sunscreen or all this kind of stuff. And I love it when people put on sunscreen, like zinc oxide, to come in for the dermatology appointment. See, I use sunscreen. You know, and then the wife says, yeah, first time all year. Um, so, so you have to make sure that your cleansing is appropriate. Make sure that you're putting on enough. Are you applying it or your no, medical, you assistant? medical assistant? Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the situation in most offices. Make sure they're putting enough on. I mean, I've seen, because there's a cost factor, and I think Medicare reimburses up to five sticks per treatment. I, I don't hold me to that, but I think that's what it is. Um, so make sure they're putting enough on. I, I, I've seen where there's not enough on, and, and, and basically you're just kind of diluting it out. So it's prepping of the skin, it's proper application. I'm not saying they're not doing it right, but using enough of it. And then it's length of time for incubation. Also make sure they're not too far back from the light. Um, you know, some patients, when it begins to sting and burn, what do you do if you're like, you know, there's a, you know, what do you do when you've got the, the OR light on and it's, you know, kind of coming right down off the back of your ear and you're trying to do surgery and your ear's getting hot? You, you know, you move away from the light, okay? Well, make, patients, I've seen this, it starts to burn and they back up. And, and of course, that reduces the effectiveness of treatment. Um, those are some things I would look at. It probably has more to do with just procedural issues than anything else. Do you do anything to help manage the pain? Well, by, by, by changing from the blue light to the red light, that helped actually quite a bit. Because I think there's still the same amount of pain, just that you can tolerate it for four minutes and five seconds better than you can for 17 minutes. Um, you can use fans. Um, if someone really gets too hot, they can take a break. We'll turn the light off for a few minutes and let it calm down. But I'm not sure that really gets you just prolonging agony. Uh, and then afterwards, you can use ice packs or you can use, um, you can take caro syrup and put it in baggies, you know, regular caro syrup from, from the store and, and freeze it. And, and that conforms very nicely to the skin, better than those, you know, the ice packs and a lot less expensive too. And patients can do that at home. So there's some things there. Thank you. Okay. Come over to this side. Right. Recently read an article in regards to field therapy using different modalities such as 5-FU versus amiquimod. And the comment in the article was pretty interesting in that there was a memory effect uh, in regards to using amiquimod versus 5-FU that might actually prolong its, um, its effectiveness and mm -hmm. giving your immune surveillance a better overall chance at keeping your AKs at bay. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, I, and I'm familiar with that, and, and yes, you are correct. We, see, there's a couple of things. I, I didn't go into it. You, know, you, can, you can take any one of these topics, any one of these drugs, you could dive into it for hours. I said that you can't fix genetic damage with, with, with management of AK, and I think that's generally true, although there is some evidence that the immune-mediated response, that cytokine soup of, of amiquimod, actually is capable of repairing some of the genetic damage because your immune system is doing the work. It's not a cytotoxic effect. It's an immune-mediated upregulation. And because you are also, you're, you're sensitizing the immune system, to use a broad term, to the presence of these precancerous and probably some microscopic foci of cancer, 
that you, you upregulate immune surveillance going forward, and the effect may be longer lasting. It may be longer lasting because there's an increased surveillance, or it may be longer lasting because what you've done is you, you have gone a step further. Remember the line, the intervention line? What you've done is you've tiptoed a little bit across that line back towards, towards genetic repair. Um, so it's kind of unknown. Amiquamod's a very interesting drug, and I like Amiquamod a lot. The biggest challenge with Amiquamod is the length of time to use it, which is somewhat helped with Cyclera. Um, but the biggest challenge, in my experience, is the surface area of treatment. I mean, you can have patients take a bath in 5-FU, and they seem to do just fine. But as you move into some of the other treatments, you have to be somewhat careful, um, because especially of the, of the, the interferon or, or flu syndrome-like effects. So I'm not sure that I necessarily answered your question as I addressed the question. Uh, but I'm not sure that I necessarily know the answer of why that effect takes place, but that is a real effect. Thank you. Yes? Do you want to go? Right. Oh, sorry. Get the, I got the light shadow over there. <laughs> um, I personally find treating actinic chylitis a bit challenging because of the location. I use solar rays a lot, but when that fails, I find the second option's difficult. And I was wondering if you could do two things. One, sort of address what you do, and two, talk a little bit about um, levulon therapy, which I think is really good for the lips, but there's always that challenge for how to bill that with Medicare, and I get a lot of conflicting things about they won't pay for treatment on the lips for actinic chylitis. You sort of started your speech by saying, call it actinic chylitis, not actinic well, keratosis, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and um, I get kind of conflicting from our billing office, oh, well, you can't bill for that. Well, I just tend to call them actinic keratosis and treat the lip, but, and bill them as actinic keratosis, but I don't know if that'll actually end up getting me in trouble at some point. And so I just wondered if you might address sure. those. And, and, and I agree, and that, that's, that's another great question is that when you, with the management of actinic chylitis, um, typically the chylitis almost always is on the lower lip, and it's always on, on, on its, its exterior to the wet line of the vermilion lip. So we, we call it the VC border, the vermilion cutaneous border. So most of it happens right along here. And one of the real challenges that you have when, you, when it comes to topical therapy is these medicines say, do not use on lips. That's what the PI says, and the patients all look it up. I can't tell you how many times I've had them call and says, doctor, or the pharmacist tells them, don't use it on your lips. And you know that, uh, the prescription says, use on lips. Um, so, so you run into some problems there. In, it, it, let me answer the billing thing, then I'll come back to sort of what I do. Um, I'm not sure on the billing. I, don't, I, I, I code everything the same for the treatment of AK, because I'm coding a disease state rather than a location of treatment. So if I treat four spots on the lip, they get coded out in the 1-7 series for four spots. I don't distinguish that from the hand or the face or other areas. So when, when someone has actinic chylitis, um, there's some, besides the usual, you can freeze the lip. It's like sucking a muffler, you know, your lips are gonna be pretty big and pretty swollen. If you really are gonna aggressively freeze the whole lip, then I think what you need to do is you need to use some lidocaine, just give them a block or just do an infiltration, because it just hurts so much. Uh, and they won't like you for a couple of weeks, but it's pretty effective. But if that doesn't work, I think you have a lot of other alternatives. Um, TCA peeling. I love doing chemical peels. I've done chemical peels for 25 years. And whenever I do a chemical peel, I'm always peeling the lips. 
And I have no, in fact, it sharpens the vermilion border, and, and generally it's usually women who are getting the peels. They like that because it freshens the lip. So you can use TCA on the lips, and it's pretty darn effective. I would probably start, if you're not familiar with peeling, start with 20, 25% TCA, and just apply it with a Q-tip. The lip will immediately frost, it'll turn white and you'll know exactly where you're using it. Um, and you can go up, you can go 20, you can go 25%, you can go 30%, 35%, like that, um, uh, generally at, at, at like six week intervals. So TCA is pretty effective. I do like, especially, amiquamod on the lips. And amiquamod is one that says in the PI, don't use on lips. So you have to tell them that they're special. And you know that it says that, but you're using it for them specifically because you wanna take care of them. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a laser guy, too, so I will sometimes use a blade of CO2 on the lip for a real aggressive actinic chylitis, and basically you burn off the lip. Um, I mean, you're, you're taking it down to the OOM muscle, and then it granulates and then heals, and you know, that works pretty well, and I've never had a, a, a bad outcome in terms of strictured scarring, range of motion issues, things like that, so it, it's pretty effective. Um, in, in terms of, um, I, I guess with, with photodynamic therapy, you know, you're always getting some kind of around the lip if you do that, and, and it works, and then it blisters, and then they said, why did you use it on the lips? Because the PI said not to put on lips. But, um, so, so those, interestingly enough, sometimes too, um, uh, and I've noticed this in tobacco chewers, if you use a miquamod on the lip, they sometimes get ulcerations inside the mouth. And I don't usually screen for leukoplakia, but I bet you that's what that is. So, so those are some thoughts. I, I hope that helps. Um, TCA, I like TCA on the lips. It's pretty effective. It's really inexpensive. It takes just a few minutes to do, and, and, and it works. Okay, now we'll come over to this side. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you would briefly mentioned the propensity for transplant rejection um, mm -hmm. patients, developing AKs and squamous cell carcinomas. Can you talk about the use of seriotane in those patients? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I didn't, um, in terms of topicals, um, I, I, I really kind of stuck with the FDA-approved products. Um, there, you know, for many, many years, going back to Kligman, there there's a number, a plethora of articles in the literature on the use of retinoids in the management of AK. Um, and, and probably this is, this is a, a, a bit of opinion um, and kind of a summary of the literature. Retinoids in the management of AK, probably, they, I think they have a beneficial impact. I think it's a stabilizing impact. I'm not so sure that they get rid of AKs, but they help to prevent AKs from forming. And then if you stop the retinoid, it doesn't seem like there's any real long-term effect, and the AKs will start coming back again. So I love retinoids. I love Tazerac and Retin-A and you know, all those products. And, and I think that those are helpful as well. If you look at systemic retinoids, Soriotane and Accutane both have some effect in terms of, um, it's actually the oncologists have that in their playbook for some squamous cells. Um, if you take systemically, um, and also it's been looked at in um, Gorlin syndrome, basal cell nevus syndrome. Systemic retinoids seem to inhibit, and it's also true in lungs for squamous cell. They seem to inhibit the development of squamous cells or the growth of squamous cells, but it's always like a holding action. It's like an armistice, you know? It's not really a victory. And, and so in the transplant patient, you have to be cautious what you use. Um, 
some of the oncologists don't like to use amiquimod. They don't want you to use amiquimod in their patients because you're upregulating the immune system and they have concerns about that. So typically I'll use 5-FU in, in the transplant patient. Um, um, does that answer your question? So, so for those of you who may not have been able to hear, um, she has patients who are riddled with, with AKs who are transplant patients who are immunosuppressed, and it's not practical to freeze. I mean, there's non-transplant patients like that as well. You know, one of the things you might look at is Zolota, oral. It's a prodrug of 5-FU, and it's converted to 5-FU. Um, that's an interesting one, and I've had, the, I've, I've had the situation where I know that a, a, a patient is at severe risk for squamous cell that's gonna go metastatic. And I'll send them to the oncologist, what else can I do? And that includes the consideration of retinoid therapy, systemic retinoid therapy. And a couple of times I've had the patient come back placed on Zolota. And, and, and it, you know, it's easy, they take a pill a day, or I'm not exactly sure what the regimen is, but it's like a pill a day. And, and, and they're getting 5-FU, and it, you can titrate the dose, and it burns away the AKs, and inhibits the growth of squamous cells. So there's, that might be something to consider discussing with the transplant surgeon or whoever's monitoring the patient. Okay, yeah. You've commented on the flu-like syndrome that you get with the imiquimod, mm -hmm. and, and I've had experience with that happening, even just treating one small area rather than the large location. Do you give them a break and then put them back on it after some time, or do you chalk it up to mm. they can yeah. no longer use that medicine again or ever? Oh, the, you know, they can use it again. It, it, it's not an allergy. It, it, it's an upregulation of, of innate interferon production. Um, the best way to regulate that is to have them take a, a, a break from treatment. That could be a few days or a week or even a couple of weeks. And then you have to decrease the surface area. So we did the dose ranging studies on this. And we did five centimeters squared, 10, like 25, like 50. And I'll tell you the break point was really pretty consistent at 25. Okay. So once you, you know, take five centimeters by five centimeters or you know, something like that, um, and, and, and once you get beyond that zone, so say more than the forehead or that type of thing, generally most of your patients will begin to, to notice it. Now noticing it can be the difference between feeling like you have influenza, and you can't get out of bed and you're puking, and you're sick, and you hate the doctor, okay? Or it can be, you know, I'm a little achy, a little crampy, but I, yeah, I take some Tylenol, no, I'm okay, I can get through the day, I can deal with this. And so, so there's a big range on that, but we were looking at the, the first initiation of the, of the symptom complex for that interferon-like effect. Um, but I don't think there's any way around it. There's going to be other immune response modifiers coming to market, and you know, it'll be interesting to see. I think it's a class effect, is what it is. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, sir. Oh, let me come over here, I'm sorry. Thank you. I enjoyed your presentation. I have Thank a question you. regarding your treatment approach or recommendations for the treatment of the disseminated superficial actinic porokeratosis on extremities. Sure. Um, DSAP. Um, you know, DSAP is kind of an interesting disease state. Um, they're, not, they're not actinic keratoses as a precancer. It's actinic damage, and you get that little, what the pathologists call that little coronoid lamella. And, and when you look at these spots, they look a lot like liver spots. 
Um, they, they, if you look at them, if you get them in just the right light, they tend to be slightly delled in the center. Usually they're hyperpigmented, and, and there's di many different kinds of porokeratosis. The, the most common, and to address your question specifically, is what we call DSAP, the disseminated superficial actinic. But actinic in this instance means photo damage. It doesn't mean precancerous. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways to treat DSAP. Um, and anytime someone tells you there's a lot of different ways to fix something, it means usually that there's not one best way, because if there was one best way, we would all do the same thing. So um, some people will use like uh, the urea-containing lotions or lachydrin, and I think sometimes that helps a little bit because you just get a mild exfoliation effect. Um, topical retinoids are popular, Tazerac, Retin-A. Uh, I think Tazerac probably works a little bit better if you can tolerate it. Usually this is on the backs of the upper arms or on the forearms and on the lower legs. And those are areas that are not known as being a real um, retinoid-resistant kind of uh, 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 treatment area. They tend to get red and rashy. But if you can do it, it works. Um, you can use um, TCA peeling. You can use uh, fractionated laser resurfacing. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat. Uh, and I think what you have to do is explain to the patient that it's a manifestation of photo damage. It's considered to be a benign manifestation. And there is no one best treatment. You know, you have to preframe the patient. You know, commonly when I treat these things, I have to use three, four, sometimes five different things before I find the best thing for you specifically, Mrs. Smith, kind of a thing. But that's how I, that's how I would approach that. Yes, Thanks. Sir. Could you please comment on HPV and sun exposure and the possible uh, initiation of AKs or basal cells or squamous cells? And then uh, on a follow-up on that, would the vaccine maybe help that? Because I know they've found some association with like flat warts on the hands. Well, there's association with, HP, with certain subtypes of HPV and squamous cell carcinoma. Um, and, and of course, I think we all know about um, vaccinations today for youth. Um, to help prevent um, 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 uh, cervical cancer, uh, HPV infection and cervical cancer. And, and I, 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 I am not familiar with literature that shows that there is, from a, from a, a genetic analysis standpoint, that there is the HPV DNA in actinic keratoses or in basal cell cancer. I, I've never run across that, and if that's something I've missed, I, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about that. Um, but some squamous cells, um, uh, do have it, and so the question is, was there a pre-existing oncogenic strain of HPV, um, and, and it does seem like within these chronically sun-exposed areas, you know, you do have decreased um, uh, uh, Langerhans cell surveillance in the photo-damaged areas. Your immune system isn't as, as, as robust in an area with chronic photo-damage, and so is that the secret to why some, some some uh, HPV lesions can transform into squamous cells. So that has been looked at. Um, in, um, uh, there's a few genetic syndromes where, where, where that's noted, where there is a, uh, a focal immune deficit with regard to HPV. And, and so you get this overgrowth of warts, and it appears that in that situation, um, there can be transformation into squamous cell, as well as we do know that in some patients who are put on immunosuppression, warts can, can, can turn into squamous cells. So there is an association there. Um, I don't have a lot of experience in that, but I, I haven't seen it in AK or, or basal cell. I think that, that the pathogenesis of a squamous cell 
in, in the immune-compromised host from HPV is a different pathogenesis from the AK into the squamous cell. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Appreciate it.